I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope Chris Pratt, I, I both hope Chris Pratt doesn't do an Italian accent in the Mario Brothers movie, and I don't, and I don't hope he does. And I do hope that he, I hope that he does, and I hope that he doesn't. You both want him to and not want if him to. He should, if he's playing Mario. Right. But if he does, I feel like it's going to be bad. Yeah. Is what I'm saying here. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Look, whatever. You know what? It's going to come out. People are going to see it. It's either going to be good or it's going to be bad. And I'm going to say one of those two things about it. (laughs) (laughs) And life will go on. It'd be pretty funny if it came out and you were like, yeah, I don't feel one way or the other about it. This coin (laughs) has landed on its side. Weirdly, I, I can't say. say if it's good or bad. I am in limbo <laughs> on the Super Mario Brothers movie. Sometimes that happens. I'm not in limbo if we've discussed it before on the original Super Mario Brothers movie. Right. It's excellent. I think we have. I feel like about that. I've already gotten the hate mail about this, but whatever. <laughs> I don't it's know. It's just, you know, it really was ahead of its mail. time. But yes, I thought it was pretty fun. <laughs> I remember we watched it during quarantine, right? Was yeah. that right? Yeah. We were, I like, said, locked in. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, you were like, this is a bad movie, but what the fuck else are we doing? Yeah. And we had to find it on YouTube in 10 minute increments. Yes. Which was so weird. (laughs) I think it's like actually streaming somewhere now. I I don't know that it is, but you can buy the DVD on Amazon for like $4. (laughs) I mean, I was fully ready to hate it. So was I. Like we kept putting on the YouTube next video or whatever. I'd be like, this is actually like pretty fun. Why is this good? It's just creative, and I respect that. I think so, yeah. Especially after many years of uh, what I'll call a dearth of creativity. Yes. Um, Extremely true. And speaking as a Marvel fan, too, I know a lot of people chalk it up to Marvel movies. Yeah. There's not a lot of creativity. I like Marvel movies. Right. And I still also feel (laughs) there is a dearth of creativity. I love the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, Mm -hmm. and I also feel like... Everybody else is clinging a little too hard to trying to do the same thing yeah. or something similar. Mm-hmm. And they're doing it at best worse <laughs> than, the, the, than Marvel's best. doing it. <laughs> worse. Anyway, <laughs> the, I, we've never opened a show with a conversation that related less to the subject <laughs> that we're talking about today <laughs> than I just did. <laughs> At least we had James Bond in part one and we got to the England thing. British, at least. This is just a fully American conversation. But we do talk about Italy later. Hey, we do. And there's there's... a couple Americans in this story, but just at least glancing references to them. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And some of these people have a dearth of quality. True. So maybe we can relate it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's. Close well, enough. Hey, we're it's going a rickety it. bridge, but you know what's going to get us there, all right? <laughs> going to cross it. You know, we're going to do the episode. It's either going to be good or it's going to be bad. <laughs> I will say one of those things. I will say one of those things at the end of the show. <laughs> no, yeah, we're here today to get to the second part of the Worsley's yeah, story. Yeah. Our Lady Seymour and Welcome Sir back. Richard right. and George Bissett. Ah, uh, these three. Love having you. Thank you so much for tuning in for part two. Yes. Yes. Hope you enjoyed Appreciate part one. You. If you haven't heard part one, what the hell are you doing here? Go back and listen. You should probably start there. You'd be very I, confused. I think that it's important. Right. <laughs> That'd be like watching the new Chris Pratt Super Mario Brothers movie without seeing the original <laughs> 1993 version. <laughs> <laughs> I assume it's no, a direct no. sequel. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. All right. So, but last time we talked about Sir Richard and Lady Seymour Worsley's troubled marriage, uh, his keeking tendencies oh, and yes. candlism. Keeking, of course, just peeking. Keeping, he, was yeah. a, he was a voyeur. Yeah. Yeah. But candlism is about showing off your partner to yeah. other people for your own sexual pleasure. Right. Um, and also the explosive criminal conversation trial that he brought against Seymour's lover, George Bissett, that ended up with Richard being awarded only a single shilling oh, in damages. damn. Very condescending right? <laughs> decision by the jury. <laughs> <laughs> but Seymour's reputation as a respectable lady was in the trash. Uh-oh. So let's find out what happened next. We got to find out the fallout of the revelations from the trial. And Richard's got a new direction in Ooh. life. And Seymour's got new friends and lovers. We'll even make it to the reign of terror in France. Oh, my. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Such a good time. All right. So much more to cover. Let's check it out. Let's do it. Hey there, friends. Come listen well. 
Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. So the Worsleys high profile crim con trial was the meatiest meat that any pamphleteer or paper writer or <laughs> journalist could ever wish for. Oh, my God. So all the satirists and wits and lampoonists took this incident straight to the bank. Oh, yeah. This is my paying my rent for the year. Oh, yeah. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks Dick Tardy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dick Tardy. Now, Sir Richard, as we said, the man of a million nicknames. Uh. At school, he was Dick Tardy. So good. As privy counselor to the king, he was Sir Finical Whimsy. <laughs> but now he was being dubbed the Twelve Penny Cuckold. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. And cartoons appeared showing him supporting George on his shoulders to peer through a bathhouse window at Seymour. Amazing. And... Usually there would be like a drooping sword depicted at crotch level oh so God. that you really got the message. Get it? <laughs> His dick don't work. His dick's His dick tardy, tardy. To this party. <laughs> <laughs> One of these cartoons was captioned, Sir Richard Worston Sly exposing his wife's bottom. Oh, fie. Wow. Worston Sly is good, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Those are... Cutting words. <laughs> he was like, oh. Of a brilliant satirist. To the quick. We don't need that in Poetry Corner. <laughs> <laughs> so I forget it was too short. <laughs> uh, Sir Richard was often displayed with the horns of a cuckold as well, which I didn't really understand that. Turns out it's a reference to the mating habits of stags. A male stag will forfeit its mate if it's defeated by another male stag. Oh. So that's why it's the horns of a cuckold. Okay. I guess. Okay, you're just you're the weak stag in this yeah, in this scenario. To, you had to give up your the rights to your lady. Yeah. I guess to Classic. another male. It happens all the time. <laughs> Tail is all this time. Mm-hmm. I had to I had to uh I had to horn butt a guy in the grocery store the other day. Why? Yeah. Cuz he was trying to he was trying to take you. Me? Yeah. I did not and pay if attention he had, to that. If he had horned me, too hard, I would have. Uh, you would be in a different house right now. I'd be like, guys, new As, host to oh, the show. The laws of nature. <laughs> <laughs> you can't deny them. How how perfectly ironic if he had joined me for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> he never would have fit in the booth with them horns, though. I tell you. I'd be like, we actually brought Eli in as a third so he could really speak from the cuckold experience. <laughs> no, I just have to sit in the corner and watch you guys record That's an right. episode together. Like, I hope you like it over there. <laughs> uh, and I'm just sadly crying and masturbating. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the, the cuckold dream? I don't understand it. I don't know. I mean, I guess you don't have to cry, but maybe it adds to it. Cucks out there, send us an email. Let us know <laughs> how it goes for you. Oh, God. Uh, also, a pamphlet with all of the juicy details from the trial mm. was published. It was sold for the ironic price of one shilling. <laughs> nice. and, I mean, perfect nod. Mm-hmm. And it was so incredibly popular that it had to be reprinted eight times. George Washington even ordered a copy in 1783. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. George I is like. I have to know more. Yeah. George is like, oh. 
See what those Brits are up to now, boy. We got out at the right time, didn't we? <laughs> Send me, along with your finest hair powder, a good account of what the hell's going on over there. <laughs> now, once this bathhouse incident got out of uh, Richard hoisting up George mm-hmm. to watch Lady Seymour get dressed, more stories were reported, too. And at some point, Worsley apparently initiated a wife swap with a friend. Uh, In 1776, Worsley threw a hunting party and brought his guests to a glass door where they could watch Lady Seymour undress. And it's unclear if she knew this was happening or not. Um, A bit different from the bathhouse incident when A, Seymour knew that right. George was watching, and B, she was getting dressed, not undressed. Very true. <laughs> and it was already a lover of hers. Who right. Had, like, seen her naked. Like, yes. there's at least some implied consent. Uh-huh. But, like, if you're just like, hey, boys, come along. Watch my wife. What an entertainment <laughs> I've got for you today. I'm going to say, <sighs> speculation station. Yeah. I hate to give credit to Richard for anything. Mm-hmm. But, uh... I feel like unless his timing was like so perfect that he knew exactly when she was going to be getting undressed, Mm -hmm. that he probably must have arranged this. I mean, it's hard to to say because they had their lives pretty well. I guess that's true. Structured around when to what, what to wear when. So you would have certain times where everyone went up to dress for dinner or something. So you would know yeah. at least at some point in this next half hour, she's well, going to be naked. I was going to say, and it took so long for them to get undressed. He's like, we've got he's between like, we've got- 1 and 3 p.m. <laughs> to get a window. We've got time for a quick sherry before I show you my wife. <laughs> Do you think they're all sitting there watching her get undressed and they're like, oh, she's starting the corset. There's one loop. There's two loops. There's three loops. And like 15 minutes later, they're like 16 loops. 17. (laughs) I tell you, old boy, the anticipation's killing me. (laughs) It's really killed old Badger over there. He's sound asleep. (laughs) We'll shake him at the finale. (laughs) (laughs) We're about to see a breast, old boy. Wake up. (laughs) Good looking out, old friend. Wake me up for the boobs. (laughs) I think a lot of people approach the theater that way. (laughs) They're like, I don't care about the story. (laughs) I mean, isn't that HBO's whole model for 10 (laughs) years? Wake me up for the boobs. (laughs) Now, another time, Sir Richard bet old Lord Shumley, uh, who at this point was already having an affair with Seymour. If you remember the Electric Eel poem from the last episode about Lord (laughs) Shumley's... Big swing and dick. Useless when alone. <laughs> um, Sir Richard bet Lord Chumley that Seymour was, quote, the finest proportioned woman in Europe. And he invited Lord Chumley to spy on her to prove it. Now, Seymour knew that he was coming and she had been instructed to undress and also wash and then dress herself slowly while Richard and this guy, you know, watched her from behind a sham door disguised as a bookcase. They did watch her get dressed, and Lord Chumley was able to see her from pretty much every angle, and Sir Richard won that bet. He had to pay up. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're right, Richard. She is the finest proportioned woman in Europe. I've seen them all. (laughs) Don't know if you heard about my enormous dick (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i mean she knew about that one she knew about about that one so i'm like i still wonder about the hunting party but i also wonder if she didn't like that very much oh yeah i mean like she did she was like please get me the hell away from this guy so yes you know if if she 
if she was like, I'll entertain your weird thing, I don't think she loved it it's herself. An, yeah, it's an era where just because a woman, quote unquote, agreed to do what her husband had mm-hmm. said, mm-hmm. doesn't mean she wanted mm-hmm. to do it. Exactly. Very <laughs> yeah, true. Sure. Well, he might have won that bet, but Richard wasn't feeling like a winner these days. Oh. He's a laughing stock in the press. <laughs> I mean, all these drooping swords, Whoops. horns and everything. He's like, everyone's laughing at me. But on top of that, his career was on really shaky ground. Mm. The same day that Seymour and George found out that Sir Richard was going to pursue a crimcon suit against George and sue Seymour for separation— was the same day that England learned that General Cornwallis had surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown. Now, Richard had worked really hard to become important to the Tory party and the prime minister, Lord North. But now the expensive and unpopular war with the colonies looked unwinnable. Mm -hmm. Now, North had tried to resign after the Yorktown defeat, but King George refused to accept it. So then the Whig party put forward a vote of no confidence to try to force him out. Mm. And North really needed all his party members to show their support. But Richard didn't show up for the vote. Oh. And so North's like, where's my boy Richard? (laughs) And... Whoever he asked was the unfortunate soul who had to remind him, like, well, the guy just kind of had a super embarrassing adultery trial. He's currently in hiding somewhere. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'll show his face right now. North replied, quote, oh, if all my cuckolds desert, I shall be beaten indeed. <laughs> I got a court full of cuckolds here. <laughs> There's so many dick toddies in the Tory party, I can't even tell you who they are. Oh, it's like the Senate. Like, if we got rid of all the adulterers, there'd be nobody left. There'd be no left. Who would run the the country? country? Now, North managed to cling to power even without Richard's support. He he won by a single vote, though. So it was very close. Okay, But not for long, as you might have noticed, by March 1782, North's administration was over. Sir Richard was no longer privy counselor for the king, and he had also resigned his position as governor for the Isle of Wight. Mm. So all his years of work building a political career was wiped away in a matter of months. Damn. And that must have been quite a blow. Yeah. He was no longer the privy counselor for the king. He was probably the privy washer. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Been waiting to make a privy joke since part one. I know, right? And how weird that the accountant's (laughs) called a privy counselor. Like, is it because the king does his books while he's taking a shit? Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) what I thought. Follow me to the privy and let's Let's balance out the accounts. (laughs) Now, Sir Richard, of course, still furious with Seymour. And their suit for separation is still going forward. But the courts had decided to award Seymour not only the pin money that she was legally entitled to, but an additional 600 pounds in alimony every year, which is going to calculate up to £112,554 today. Mm. It's like over 100000 bucks. Pretty good. U.S., that's a lot of money. Alimony was unusual at the time, but the courts thought that he needed to pay for his part in destroying their marriage. Now, Richard didn't want to give Seymour a single dime, and he was still holding on to all of her clothes and her jewelry and all her personal belongings and everything, so he appealed the alimony. But, you know, we spent some time with Seymour. We know what she's like. Mm. She took her revenge as well. (laughs) Richard wouldn't divorce her 
like she wanted. That's right. Simple, clean, easy peasy. Let's just divorce and get the hell out of each other's lives. Yeah. But he was being a real dick tardy about it. So <laughs> that meant that she had to keep his name. But that also meant that whatever scandalous shit she got into would reflect poorly on him. Oops, so... <laughs> get that better party really hard. <laughs> exactly. Seymour strutted right back into high society with George Bissett on her arm. Not a bit of repentance for her behavior. And she just started pulling all these outrageous pranks. She would get wasted in public. Not stumble through the street. Dyke. Oh, no. What is Lady Seymour <laughs> doing? Lady Seymour Worsley, in case you forgot. Mm. <laughs> oh, her husband ought to be ashamed of himself wherever <laughs> he is. Uh, she would throw all these huge parties. One night, she went to the theater with George and she threw this white cloak over their box and proclaimed her innocence to the world. <laughs> Look at my purity. Yeah, she's like, <laughs> I don't deserve all this mess. We all know who the true villain is. Uh-huh. So she just kept her and Richard's name and story alive in the papers, which was the last thing that old Richard ever wanted. Now, Seymour's reputation had been... Terribly damaged by this trial, just as sure, much as Richard, sure. of course. Uh, she became estranged from her family. Most of the respectable society ladies who she would have spent her time with now refused to be associated with her, oh. invite her to their parties or mm -hmm. receive her in their drawing rooms or any of that stuff. Right. But there was a whole subset of high society that included ostracized women like Seymour who had tried to leave their husbands, either because they were shitty or they just weren't suited for each other or they fell in love with someone else. And they were now living on the fringes of society as a result. And these women went out of their way to befriend Seymour. This is amazing to me. This sounds like like Oliver Twist, like Oliver and Company or something, <laughs> where it's like you've got this group of, of badass ladies or like they, they don't act so proper no more you won't come spend some time with us we just get drunk and fuck and play piano That's and bars right. and stuff like yeah. amazing i would i would opt to join these ladies over this they stuffy society fun, folks. right yeah now one of her closest new friends was lady henrietta grosvenor whose husband had actually caught her in bed with the brother of the king it was the duke of cumberland whoops and he brought a crimcon suit against the Duke, the brother of the king. I was like, that's kind of ballsy in right. my opinion. But he brought a suit and he won 10,000 pounds. Okay. But Henrietta, much like Seymour, was not going to let her husband walk around like he had this injured saint act or some shit. Okay. She took herself to every brothel she could think of <laughs> to collect witnesses and evidence to her husband's Many infidelities <laughs> to share with the court. Yes. And it prevented him from getting an annulment of their marriage. So he had to continue paying her a yearly allowance <laughs> to like support herself. Nice. Way to go, Henrietta. Mm -hmm. Now, another one of Seymour's new circle of friends was Caroline Stanhope. And she was the second Countess of Harrington, which is not to be confused with Seymour's perfect sister, Jane, who was also the Countess of Harrington. Lady... Very confusing. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, Caroline Stanhope was actually Jane's mother-in-law. So she would have been the mother of the man that Jane married, 
who she almost didn't get to marry because of Lady Seymour's antics in part one. That's right. When she threw those breeches out the window right, with that right, masquerade yeah. ball, he was like, I don't know. Your family is a bit wild. Well, wow. Well, they had a wild one and in their family, like, too. Your mother, yes, sir. Yes, exactly. I'm sure that was probably the exact conversation. Was uh-huh. He's like, Jane, I'd really like to talk to you about your sister Seymour. She's kind of a um, little much. And she's like, uh, I'm so sorry. Is this your mom, Caroline Stanhope? Right. And he's like, you so red. I'm about to leave. <laughs> See you at our wedding. <laughs> For real. Because like Caroline Stanhope was notorious, but she was still widely accepted in society because she was the daughter of a duke and her husband was an earl and they were still married. In fact, they had seven children together. So they were getting it on, unlike Richard and Seymour. Uh-huh. <laughs> but she was also someone who like thumbed her nose at convention and lived out loud. Out loud. According to Hallie Rubenhold's biography, The Lady in Red, Caroline Stanhope used her home as an unofficial gaming house, quote, even on Sundays. <gasps> Outrageous. And she was known to make introductions between aristocrats and genteel prostitutes. Mm. And of course, she took lovers of her own. Of course. She was, in fact, bisexual, and she even suffered from serious depression when one of her lovers, Elizabeth Ash, ran off with some diplomat. Mm. In society pages, she was portrayed as an insatiable nymphomaniac. Uh-huh. She was called the Stable Yard Messalina. And a publication called Town and Country wrote that she had so many lovers, quote, from a monarch down to a hairdresser and every member of the diplomatic body, that their names alone would fill an entire page. Rumor had it that she even slept with her servants. <gasps> now that's real low. I mean, in, the, in there. <laughs> right, feeling. right. But of course, we know from the last episode that Seymour was rumored to have anywhere from 11 to 60 lovers of her own, and she maybe had like five in actuality. Right. So you could take it with a grain of salt. These rumors were definitely highly exaggerated. Yeah, yeah, Again, yeah. Again, what did these people have to talk about? Exactly. And they I were think so bored. I think Caroline, too, kind of liked it. So she sure. was just like, say whatever you want. Yeah. So she's like, I don't care. Because again, if you had enough money and you were titled enough, nobody could really touch right. you. Right. So it was like, say what you want to say. I don't give a fuck. Right. And she's part of this band of sex thieves. Like, they probably <laughs> sex th- thieves. I don't know why I made them thieves. <laughs> I'm still in the Oliver Twist world where they're just like <laughs> living underground in the sewers and playing dice. And going out and getting laid whenever they want. That's probably not not at all. I'm not wrong? (laughs) Great. You're close. Not sewers, but otherwise, (laughs) (laughs) otherwise, kind of. Right. No, now Caroline Stanhope was so wild that she had been blackballed by what was known as the female coterie. And this was a collection of, like, highly born, extremely respectable society ladies who would meet at the All Max Club to eat and drink and gossip and play cards together. Mm. You know, just regular club stuff that you did. But Caroline was cut out from the very beginning. They were just like, no, we can tell that you are not (laughs) one of us. Uh. But she did not care. She said, keep your shitty ass club. And she started her own club. Nice. It was known as the New Female Coterie. Oh, that's such a diss. (laughs) I know, right? I'm going to straight up take the name of your club. And it's also it's newer and, it and therefore younger. Yes. <laughs> Y'all old. I'm new. Mm-hmm. You're looking drab, by the way, Lady Jersey. <laughs> um, it comprised Caroline's notorious friends, women like Henrietta and Seymour. And instead of meeting at a respectable locale like Almax, 
Caroline assembled all her friends at a fancy brothel run by a woman named Mrs. Sarah Prendergast. Nice. Now, this wasn't just Caroline's preferred location. It was also her husband's favorite brothel. (laughs) This guy was known to be, quote, as lecherous as a monkey. Wow. The lords and ladies of his class called him the goat of quality. And the prostitutes he visited called him Lord Fumble. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Was he always dropping shit? "Mm." <laughs> right, or he just couldn't quite uh-huh. get it together. Uh-huh. <laughs> he can't, he can't the, catch the ball, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> the goat of quality? I know. Not like goat, like greatest of all like time. Like greatest of all, but just but like, like a goat. A goat. <laughs> a goat that eats trash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, apparently, he visited this brothel like clockwork four days a week. And he always asked for two girls every time. Well, yeah, he fumbled one. I know, he's like, well, you know I'm not going to do well. (laughs) I always drop the first one. (laughs) Send me two. Rubenhold writes that between his regular visits and Caroline paying a retainer to use the rooms for her new female coterie meetings, the couple, quote, almost single-handedly supported Mrs. Prendergast's enterprise. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Our highest patron. (laughs) The Harringtons. The Harringtons. Wow. Most titled women never set foot inside a brothel. Mm. They wouldn't know where to find one, what it was. You know, you're supposed to be real sheltered from that sort of thing. They're like, what is this, Paris? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But these ladies met there all the time to eat, drink, gossip, and play cards, just like their more respectable counterparts. Yeah, because they're like, oh, where will the female coterie never bother us? True. (laughs) That's so true. As Mike Rendell writes on Dirty Hit... SexyHistory.com, sometimes these ladies would also earn a little money by taking their pick of the gentlemanly visitors to the brothel while they were there meeting up and hanging out. Oh. So you can kind of imagine like a tipsy lady watch some like hot guy walk in and she goes, hold my champagne, Caro. I've got an itch to scratch. (laughs) So they would literally, they're just there to hang out. But every once in a while, they'd be like, yeah, I'll take one, too. I guess. Or, yeah. like, the guy maybe would, like, fl- come up to her uh-huh. and she'd go, Wait, let's go upstairs. Kind of nice because they could they could kind of have their pick because they can easily say, like, oh, we don't work here. Right. We're not prostitutes. No, thank you. Um, but then if the, you know, the, 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 the 1700s Hugh Jackman walks in and she's <laughs> like, oh, yes, no, I actually, my schedule's clear today. You, know? <laughs> you can have me as long as you like me. <laughs> So Seymour had joined the world of the demi-monde, or the half-world, which is a fashionable circle of courtesans, actresses, and divorced or separated wives. Sounds hot. Sounds like the best group of people to (laughs) hang out with. I know, right? Uh, And this was a true comfort for Seymour, because it was hard not to have a circle of female friends in this very gendered society. Mm -hmm. But her male friends, they didn't change at all. She was still hanging out with the Prince of Wales and his circle of expensive, dashing friends. And compared to Richard, she was actually doing socially really great. Mm -hmm. While Richard was still the star of a bunch of humiliating cartoons, she was hanging out with literal royalty. Mm. She even started wearing men's breeches, boots, and spurs to ride horses like super fast through the park, which was this big spectacle, drew lots of attention. You know? I mean, first of all, she's wearing pants a woman. and men's boots. Yeah, they're they're like, there's a woman riding a horse in the park. Well, that's 
That's sort of interesting. <laughs> and she's wearing pants? Ah, <gasps> oh, this I've got to see. Get my smelling salts. <laughs> <laughs> Someone burn feathers. <laughs> the housekeeper has fainted. Burning feathers? Is that what they did? Yeah. It's got to be those Regency books. Yeah. Yeah? They did. I mean, is it the? Is that supposed to smell and wake you up? I yeah. suppose it would. Yeah, Sounds I guess like if you didn't stinks. have any smelling salts, you could just burn feathers. Oh, I've never burned a feather. I imagine it smells like burning hair. it probably smells pretty bad. Yeah. Or at least it burns slowly might be the main thing. And you can like waft it in front of their face or something. I don't know. I've never burned a feather. It's got to smell. Feather burners of the world, shoot us an email. (laughs) Let us know what it smells like. (laughs) You have a funny idea of all the people listening to the show. There's a whole group of people out there. Cucks and feather burners, reach out. (laughs) (laughs) I assume some of our biggest audience is the cucks and the feather burners out there. Who's listening to this show? Tag yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So she's whipping down through the park real fast on horses all the Mm -hmm. time, drawing all this attention. The Prince of Wales wanted to hold a race just so he could see her ass in tight pants, basically. Uh, But Seymour decided not to do it at the last minute. But she did show up to race a two-wheeled phaeton. Mm. She's like, I'll do a chariot race. How's that sound? Yeah, there you go. And my Can't ass see is my hanging ass, out the back. But... <laughs> oh, I was thinking maybe you could see it better. I don't know. I, I guess it was you a closed would be carriage. standing, maybe, right? Hard to say. I, I don't know what a two-wheeled phaeton. Yeah, I don't know. Two-wheeled phaeton riders of the world. <laughs> Send us pics. Send um, us pics. <laughs> of so, your phaeton. Of your phaeton, <laughs> yes. Which is a carriage. Right. Not, not, I don't right. know what you think your phaeton is, That's but right. be careful about what pictures you send us. <laughs> Sensitive material. Picture of my phaeton. <laughs> so she shows up in this two-wheeled phaeton to do this race anyway, and Rubenhold writes that, quote, even among her set, these tricks were exceptional feats of audacity. But this time, it wasn't just about Richard. At the time, it was considered inadvisable for women to ride too hard and fast on a horse because masculine competition and all the physical motion was bad for the womb and could result in hysteria or masculinization of the woman or infertility or miscarriage. Seems legit. Now, Rubenhold writes that, quote, her sudden passion for dangerous gallops was perfectly explicable because she was actually pregnant at the time with her and George's second child. And, you know, put this delicately, she was trying not to be pregnant anymore. Yeah. I see. But it didn't work. The baby hung in there. So as she grew more obviously pregnant, she naturally withdrew from the public eye. But at some point, a letter from her to Richard, addressed to Richard, appeared in print. And people were like, salivating for her side of the story. So she knew this was going to, like, really get some attention. She hired a ghostwriter for it, so she did not write it herself. Now, this was a 16-page long diatribe (laughs) against Richard and everything he'd done to her. Oh, so good. It implied that he was actually gay. Oh. Again, a big... Pretty fucked up thing to say at the time when it was so illegal. Right, right. Um, It said that he only married her for her money. Mm -hmm. You know, it really just laid into Richard and was like, I'm the sympathetic figure. This guy sucks. And, of course, this, you know, just kicked up the whole spark around the story again. And the 12-penny cuckold himself was like, you know what? (laughs) Fine. (laughs) Fine, Seymour. And he finally decided to give her her clothes back, which was 
probably what she was going for when she wrote this letter in the first place. He did keep her jewels, though. He was like, I ain't giving you all this treasure. But he also penned a response himself. He didn't hire a ghostwriter. He wrote it. And it it portrayed her as an insatiable sex maniac. He admitted that he could not keep up with her sexual needs and was kind of like, I mean, wouldn't any man in my situation enlist some friends to help him out? Wow. <laughs> that, I uh, mean, yeah. no, Richard, actually, right. no, <laughs> probably not. So this didn't I mean, really... it's never, yeah, it's never sold well when a man goes out to the public and says, my wife wants too much sex. So I just, obviously, I called some other men in mm-hmm. to have sex with her. Like, doesn't really just like portray any you. man would do, right, fellas? <laughs> yeah, they're not all standing up to be like, "Oh, sure, yes, mm-hmm. I hate it when my wife wants too much sex. I always <laughs> give it away to someone else." So that yeah, this didn't really make him look very good or anything. <laughs> but what he was really trying to do was win his suit for separation and get this extra alimony overturned. Oh, okay. So he was trying to appear sympathetic in the eyes of the court that she was like publicly persecuting him in the papers and doing all this stuff to make him look bad. Yeah. But his initial appeal failed. Mm. All he got changed was that he could pay Seymour her alimony quarterly instead of monthly. (laughs) So they were like, same amount, but you can spread it out a little more. (laughs) And so he was like, damn it, that's not what I was looking for. So he turned around, he put in another appeal. He just did not want to give Seymour anything. Because thanks to her, the story about him just would not die. He had been the subject of very public ridicule for nearly a year now, which would hurt anybody, (laughs) I think. And he realized, you know what? I'm going to have to leave England for a while to let this die down. Mm -hmm. As long as I'm here, the story's alive. So it was high time for another Richard reinvention. And we will find out how he went about that right after these messages. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials 
cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. To, you know, People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, cucks and feather burners of the world. <laughs> <laughs> people are going to stop listening. Our primary demographics. <laughs> They're like, I don't want people to think I'm a cuck or a feather burner. I'm going to stop listening. I don't know. Feather burner might be good. You're helping people wake up from, look, That's we don't need to get into it. We got a long story. So, Richard wanted to reinvent himself, just like he had on his study abroad. Ah, there you go. <laughs> um, but he was going to have to go further abroad than he ever had before, because even in Rome, they were calling him the Twelve Penny Cockold. Oh. So he decided that he would head to Spain, Portugal, Greece, Turkey, Egypt, even Russia. And he was going to collect marble statues and antiquities and items of historical interest in an effort to reinvent himself as a scholar and an intellectual. Mm. In Egypt, he would regularly see all these slave auctions. And he kind of got obsessed with the idea of buying a young slave girl. He liked the thought of a young woman being entirely under his control. But... The prices were too high. 
I'll say the prices were too high because a lot of the girls that were on sale were white and not black. No kidding. Um, yeah, they were at least very fair skinned yeah. and white presenting. Wow, so they okay. were like, worth more, quote unquote, I guess. Wow. Jeez, boy, there's a lot to unpack there. So many, I mean, you know, you, you dwell in slavery <laughs> too long and everyone is just awful. Yeah. Everything about it. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing redeeming. So the prices were so high that he instead purchased a young black boy as his page. He was like, bye, Jove, I'm going to buy someone, damn it. Literally. That, yeah. He was like so obsessed with it. It was like a collectible for him, I you guess. You know, I previously thought Richard was kind of a piece of shit. But now, now I know. Now he's like runny shit. <laughs> um, yeah. Not runny only shit. that, it gets worse. Richard also severely beat and mistreated this boy. And at one point in Russia, he stayed with some fellow Englishmen named Samuel and the philosopher Jeremy Bentham, uh, who you may remember as John Locke's pseudonym in the last uh, two seasons of Lost. Of course, everyone immediately yeah. thought oh, of that. Oh, it was that. great. It was that whole, it, it, you all remember, it was that whole mystery where after, when the Oceanic, right, babe, when, when the Oceanic Six were off the island and they couldn't figure out uh, how to get back and they were all talking to each other and they were like, uh, you know, now, now, that, that, uh, you know. Oh, Jeremy Bentham told us that we had to do this to get back to the island. Babe, this uh, is for another uh, show. I, okay. <laughs> we're not talking about Lost. I know, but I could. <laughs> I would love to challenge you to find a lost Look, reference in every episode of our show. Well, there was a lot of philosophers' <laughs> names being dropped on Lost. So it's Jeremy true. Bentham. I could have do it. <laughs> Jeremy Bentham was a roommate of Sir Richard here. And Jeremy wrote that their home was regularly rocked by, quote, the lad's shrieks and agonies. Uh, continues the quote, he treated the poor boy with barbarous cruelty. Nobody could be more wretched than he was in his master's presence. Ugh. Oh, God. And that seems to be sort of the point for yeah. Sir Richard. I mean, why else would you become obsessed with owning a person and having a person under your complete control if it wasn't to treat them as badly as you wanted? Right, And right. they couldn't leave you yeah. for better employment. Yeah. Uh, and also, Jeremy Bentham's sitting there being like, this is absolutely terrible and apparently not putting a stop to it. So I, not you know, much better. Jeremy. Okay, I definitely had that question too. I was like, they people apparently were very disgusted by his treatment of this boy all through his the whole time he had him. Wow. And no one said a fucking word. Ugh. Oh, this world. But much like the tragic fate of Jane, who, if you remember, was Seymour and George's illegitimate child together, this boy just disappeared at some point, and no one knows what happened to him. You know, we can all hope that he ran off to a happier life. Mm. It's possible that he died or maybe even was killed. Again, uh, again if we, we it, it sometimes it really feels like Sir Richard killed that girl. I, I, I'm like, the fact one. that the two people closest to him, his wife and his friend George, uh -huh. both thought that he had it in him to kill their daughter. Right. And then when she died, they were like, yeah, he probably killed her. Uh-huh. I, I think he might have just yeah. treated this boy so terribly that he died. Yeah. Or got so, you know, a beating fucked him up so much that he never recovered. Jeez. I don't know. Uh, speculation station, we don't know what Richard is like, but right. all the evidence points to a real piece of work. Yeah. In either case, this boy certainly wasn't with Sir Richard when he decided by 1787 that it had been long enough 
uh, in his uh, abroad journey that he was going to come back to England. When he did get back to England, he was accompanied by someone. It was his housekeeper, which is a euphemism for a mistress of an unequal social status. Her name was Sarah Smith. So while Richard was away, Seymour did not have an easy time of it. At the end of January 1783, and while she was still pregnant, George Bissett left her. Ah, damn, George. I know, right? We're rooting for you. But he had stuck with her for nearly a year after this big trial. But it's clear that she could never remarry as long as Richard was still alive Mm. and that he was never going to get her a divorce. And he needed a legitimate heir for his own estate. Uh, He may also have succumbed to pressure from his religious family. Right, right, right. Whatever happened, their days were pretty much numbered as soon as they found out that Richard was suing for separation. Okay. Um, And Seymour maybe sensed that, and that might have been why she was trying so hard to miscarry their second child. Oh, wow. Because she was like, if you're not even going to be here to help help me with this baby, I don't know why I would carry it, I suppose. And eventually, George would marry a woman named Harriet Mordaunt. Settle down as a justice of the peace, have two children, and be remembered as an epitome of virtue. <laughs> Good job, George. <laughs> wow. Looks like things worked out fine for old George Bissett. Great for George. Wow. It's the reinvention that Richard wanted so badly. Yeah. So in that way, he got a bit of a revenge on Richard, okay, I think. Fair, he, fair, he, yeah. did, he did get the—nobody really remembered this whole sordid episode of his yeah. past. But for now, Seymour was heavily pregnant— broke and alone. Damn. And Rubenhold writes, quote, while she had chosen with defiant pride to wear the epithet of whore as she had hung from her lover's arm, the true meaning of the term only revealed itself to her in his absence. Oh, okay. Without him, Seymour faced a future where her financial need, not her heart, determined who she would be embracing. Oh, so it was like, almost like you've been playing the part yeah. But now you really got to know what it's yeah, like. You got to play the part. Yeah. Like I think you can't, so. You can't, you, you've been cosplaying right. as a sex worker, but you don't really get yeah. what it's like in these streets. And now she does. Yeah. It's sort of like the new female coterie. It sounds really fun uh-huh. and theory, mm-hmm. but also these were women who straight up had to kind of just accept the advances of the richest man who mm. was interested yeah. as long as he was interested. And right. then they'd get dropped like a bad habit and yeah. they'd have to find another one. Ugh. It's just a very unstable, uncertain existence. Yeah. You know, yeah. you you couldn't really make plans. It was very shifting sands kind of. Some things were, sometimes it was great, sometimes it wasn't. And I think for Seymour, it all seemed fine to have a man pay for your life and not be married to him. As right. long, but she was actually in love with George yes. and she really wanted to be with him. Right. But now she's like, oh, now I have to just find a guy. Yeah. And that's not really, I think, that's not really her thing. This is wild. And I'll, I'll go ahead and put it in speculation station. Um, but I'm starting to think that just exclusively at this exact moment in history, mm-hmm. life for women was challenging. <laughs> and I don't, and it just, I'm, I, I don't know. It's, I'm just, it just kind of feels like that way to me. Maybe I'm overstepping and maybe I sound crazy. You know, in these day and age. <laughs> I feel like for just know. a narrow window of time there in yeah. a very small part of the world, mm-hmm. life for women might've been a little difficult. Yeah. Fortunately in every other country, every other time, yes. totally fine. Yeah. No, nothing yeah, to complain no, about. Specifically, I don't want to, again, I don't, I'm not trying to go too crazy with right, this. Right, but, right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, women of the world, write in and let me know what you think of that. <laughs> please don't. <laughs> no, please don't. We know we're kidding. 
This was sarcasm station. Sarcasm station. <laughs> so Seymour was certainly hella broke. She was running up debts like crazy when she started seeing a man named Isaac Byers in 1783. He was a wealthy plantation owner. He had no society presence. So he kind of felt like Seymour had all the connections that he would want to, like, cut a dash in society. You okay. know, she still knows the Prince of Wales and all that type of yeah. thing. So he's like, great, you've got what I need. Plus, she was pregnant, which meant he would be safe from an illegitimate child. Oh, okay. It's like hitting the jackpot of For a little while. <laughs> I know, right? Until <laughs> yeah. she gave birth. Right. Now, since Seymour and Richard's suit for separation had still not been decided, Seymour was able to plead coverture, which was like a law saying that a husband was responsible for paying his wife's debts. But... Since Richard was abroad and nobody could get a hold of him, how convenient, Mm -hmm. her creditors started harassing her. They would knock on her door at all hours of the night. They would wait in the street for her to come out of her house. Uh, They would wait by establishments that she frequented and jump all over her when she showed up. This was a total campaign of intimidation and bullying that honestly would make anybody just lose their minds. I think I would. Constant harassment. I was thinking about when we had so much debt and our phones would just ring a lot. Oh, right. And yeah. it was so horrible and annoying yeah. and anxiety inducing. And then I'm like, imagine if they were just knocking every day. Yeah. Every, any, multiple times a day. If oh every God. time you went out, they would jump out of your freaking bushes, basically, and be right. like, where's my money? You go, you you try to go out to dinner just one night and they're like, what are you doing here buying dinner? You should right? be giving me that Pay money. Pay me my money. You know? Yeah. Mm. Yes. Oof. I mean, they do need to get paid. <laughs> but come on. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Most of them. I feel badly because <laughs> these are probably tradespeople yeah. who like really, they yeah. were just merchants. Right, like, right. I li- like I need yes. it. <laughs> this wasn't like a predatory loan company. Right. This is like I, somebody who's like. And a lot of aristocrats didn't ever pay their bills. They would just place a bigger order oh my and God. kind of kick the can down the road. Ugh. So that at some point you had to be like really mean about it. So I get it. But I'm also like, whoa, I'm <laughs> putting people... myself in Seymour's shoes. Right. Horrible. How come people who have so much money are so good at never spending it? <sighs> That's how they have it. Oh, <laughs> I guess. God. I didn't get rich by writing a bunch of checks. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually Seymour gave birth to George's second child. But there is no record of what happened to this baby. Finally, she and Isaac Byers fled to Holland and Belgium to escape her creditors. But at some point in Belgium, Byers left her. And no one knows what she was up to from that point until she returned to England. At this point, she was pregnant again and totally alone. This was uh, 1785. Mm -hmm. Her creditors immediately heard she was back and just jumped back on their campaign of intimidation Eventually, Seymour gave birth to this little girl, and she fled the country again, and this time she headed to rural France. And there, she took this baby girl, she found a local family somewhere out in the in the countryside mm-hmm. to raise this kid, which was fairly common in the 18th century. Apparently, yeah. You just went and found some poor couple somewhere who, right? Probably- I guess they were poor, but they could easily support maybe, a child. Maybe they like were struggling to have a child of their own. True. Somebody comes in with a healthy baby and they're like, oh, mm-hmm. a been answered. <laughs> or they're like, you got so many. I mean, you won't even notice. Oh, yes. Could be the opposite. Yes. <laughs> One or the other. Uh, another two hands for the farm. Sounds perfect to me. <laughs> How healthy is she? <laughs> Can you milk a goat? <laughs> you will. <laughs> <laughs> But France would be a perfect place for Seymour to live. Yeah. Particularly 
Paris, because women were allowed a sexual freedom in France that was highly unusual for English ladies. Oh. As Rubenhold writes, quote, French society ladies would hardly have batted an eye at Seymour's list of indiscretions, nor entirely understood what had precipitated such a scandal in the first place. Yes. A lady's good reputation in France was defined by her skill at amorous intrigue, while the figure of a virtuous wife was ridiculed and dismissed. Yes, I want to live in that place. (laughs) Sounds great. This sounds like one of those times and places that was perfect for women and they had no troubles. Oh, no problem at all. <laughs> I know. I'm like, that's just a whole different set of problems, probably. Uh, but, sure, sure. But certainly for someone like Seymour, she's like, oh, y'all don't even know what I'm talking about. Right? <laughs> I could. I have to try hard to be <laughs> to be crazy over here. They're like, people are mad about this lover you took. You threw their breeches? Oh, hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, I would have thrown their uh, jock straps myself, but uh, you, you. <laughs> Rubenhold actually name checks our friend Governor Morris. Yes, As Morris. one of the people who wrote about this extreme difference, and of course he did. <laughs> of course <laughs> he did. What else would he have written about? Of course he did. Please, if you haven't heard our episode about Governor Morris, he's one of our favorite characters we've ever done. He's best an amazing founding father. Person. He's hands down the best founding father there was. He was a very cool guy. Yes, please check yes. it out if you have not heard it already. Yes. And actually, he was in, he was in France around the same time as Seymour would have oh, been. Oh, yeah? So I just like to think about them maybe like seeing, you know, hanging out at a party and like flirting a little bit. Yes. Like, wouldn't it be dope if you found out that they had an affair? Ah, I would die. Oh, my God. But they did. I don't think they did. But uh, we, we talked in that episode about starting an HBO show. I was like, you could do six seasons on Governor Morris. Easy, easy. Amazing show. Constant adventure, excitement, really great characters. It's the end of the Uh, card. (laughs) Hello, we could definitely do another show about Seymour and Richard and all this stuff. And then there's a crossover episode. (gasps) So we've created a whole... I love it. Uh, it's television like, universe. again, the Ridiculous Romance universe. Yes. Where the, the same actress that plays Lady Seymour, you see her in Governor Morris. Ugh. And then you're like, oh my God, turns out the next season is about that bitch Look, who you thought was just a plain bit character, but actually. Perfect. And then spin off. Look, all I'm saying is HBO executives of the world who are listening to our show. Certainly. Uh, s- please shoot us an email. We'd love to get a 10 show contract <laughs> with you. <laughs> we would love to <laughs> sign right away. It's half written already. Come on. Anyway, this reversal of the roles made Paris a preferred destination for the ostracized British ladies who behaved badly. Mm-hmm. Brits who behaved badly. Brits behaving badly. That's the title of one of the shows that we're going to (laughs) do. Gotta be. And plus, France was going through an Anglophile phase at this time. And Uh so everything English was like all the rage. Except their sexual behavior. Except that. They were like, (laughs) "Mm, we don't want to co-opt that. But like, some of your stuff is cool. Yeah, we love big clocks and tea. <laughs> I'm sure the food probably was not, yeah, also right. not, <laughs> not probably fashion styles imported over. Yeah, yeah, I think some fashion, probably some art, right? Music, yeah, yep. you know, stuff like that, yeah. cultural things, mm-hmm. a dancing, a dance. Oh, sure, like dances. Dance it's all the rage in England. Mm-hmm. They're dancing the waltz at all max of all places. <laughs> So Seymour would have been pretty warmly welcomed in France, and she became friends with the Duke of Orleans and his whole circle. And that's how she met her next protector, Joseph Boulon. 
or the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. This guy also just deserves his whole sh- his whole own show yes. on HBO. This guy really is amazing. He's super handsome. He's charming. He's an amazing dancer. He's a champion fencer. Also, he's a noted composer and conductor and violin player. What can he do? Also, he was black. His father had been a plantation owner, but his mother was a 16-year-old slave named Nanan who was the wife's personal maid. So Daddy Boulogne actually recognized and claimed Joseph as his own son and made sure he got a really good education. But since Joseph was black, that meant he couldn't inherit any titles or land, and he was barred from marrying any lady in his own class. But if you're watching Bridgerton and you think, that's not what they looked like, there were black aristocrats, Absolutely, And... This guy was one of them, and I would totally watch a show about him because he mm-hmm. sounds like a hottie. Reggae Jean Page, anyone? <laughs> right. Now, by his own talents and virtues, this guy made a place for himself in fashionable society. He even famously dueled a transgender champion fencer named La Chevalier Deon. And Marie Antoinette frequently attended this guy's concerts and operas. People called him Le Mozart Noir. And he actually was roomies with Mozart for several months in 1778. Now, you know that would be his own season of his show. Oh, my God. Because Mozart, Mozart was a little troublemaker. I feel like Definitely. they could have gotten to some shit together that would oh be my so God. funny. Oh, Mozart was a real handful. I can't wait for our Mozart episode. All right. Now, either... Joseph was also a troublemaker, or it was like an odd couple situation. Either way, I'm in. <laughs> Joseph was like real clean and proper, yeah. like Mozart. Stop doing fart jokes at dinner. <laughs> uh, oh, another name check also. One woman said about St. George that his powers of musical improvisation to use only music to create a mood and a story was comparable to her other favorite composer... Hector Berlioz! Another one of our episodes that's just a delight. Go check it out. Another wild fucking story. (laughs) Very wild. The things this guy did for love. Composers, man. Who knew? The composers led such wild lives. You know, artists. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges sounds like a super hot guy to be a mistress for. So good for you, Seymour. (laughs) (laughs) So she's doing great in France, damn it. But even so... She did return to London in 1788 because finally, after five years, her and Richard's case for separation and alimony was coming to an end. Jeez. Richard, boo, had succeeded in overturning the 600-pound alimony. Oh, man. So he would not have to pay that extra money to Seymour. But he did still have to pay all her insanely high debts. Nice. And that meant that he had to sell his London townhouse and everything inside it. Oh, boo-hoo. I'm kind of laughing at Richard. It feels like everything he wanted went terribly, went completely the opposite direction. Yeah. Like, he's like, I'm not going to give you what you want, which is a divorce. I'll sue for separation. So she's like, let me run up a quick bill. Yeah. And he, you have to pay it. Yeah. I feel like he's playing himself at every He really turn. was. I mean, she outwitted him, and mm-hmm. he was a t- he, he really let his arrogance get the best of him. Definitely. Because like we said in part one, it was all about, for him, it was all just about not being 
wronged or injured. It was like yeah. his pride was really what he was so obsessed with. Yeah. And he was like, I'm socially this and that and I yeah. don't deserve this. You know, How like dare he couldn't you get over himself. Just try to get one over on me. I'll show you. And then he did something crazy stupid. And yeah. like if he, he had just divorced her, he'd have every all this stuff. Yeah. He'd be fine. He'd, he'd be, be like living a her. whole new life. He'd be have his own money. Yeah. He wouldn't have no wife in the papers right. talking shit. I don't know what his problem is. <laughs> he mm. wasn't thinking straight. So, yeah, having to sell his house and all that stuff in it, that was yet another blow to Richard's enormously inflated sense of ego. Mm -hmm. um, but also, he got real worried that Seymour was going to resume all her pranks and scandalous behavior and put his name back in the papers and everything and ruin all his chances of uh -huh. redeeming his reputation as long as she was in London. So he included a clause that Seymour had to leave England for four years. Yep. And if she returned before four years was up, he could legally withhold her pin money, oh. which was, again, her only source of independence, right. by the way. So that sounds crazy to me that she signed that shit. Even Richard and Seymour's lawyers both were like, this is not legal. Right. <laughs> you can't do this. I'm assuming she probably just wanted to go back to France anyway. I mean, I'm saying I wish someone would sue me and tell me you have to go to Paris <laughs> for four years. <laughs> okay. Oh, no. I guess I'll sign. Crying. Crying. <laughs> Where's my pen? Um, so, yeah, I'm assuming she just was like, yeah, great. Fine. Fuck England. I'll go back to France where they appreciate me. Uh -huh, <laughs> you know what uh -huh. I mean? And she was also probably just so done with, like, all of Richard's little tricks. Yeah trying to keep them from yeah. getting done with each other. Yeah, you're telling she's me like, whatever, I'll sign a four-year vacation from you? from you? Sure, mm -hmm. bye. But the French Revolution was close. Oh. And we will find out how that affected Seymour right after these words. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host. 
Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. You know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. So for the next few years, Seymour lived in Paris. The Chevalier de Saint-Georges was no longer in her life, but she took up with another duelist named Dick England, Hmm. which... Ironically, to me, sounds like a very American name. <laughs> Dick England here. <laughs> he was a different type of duelist. This I'm guy... here to sell you some siding. <laughs> yeah. say some aluminum Dick siding. Dick England's aluminum siding. <laughs> <laughs> big totally. dicks, big cars. <laughs> right oh. off Highway 29. <laughs> Dick England's Mini Coopers. <laughs> now, he was a different kind of duelist. This guy used pistols. Mm-hmm. She probably met him years before through the Prince of Wales, but he had fled England after killing a man in a duel. So thanks to her friendship with the Duke of Orleans, they established a pharaoh table at the Palais Royal. Pharaoh's a a gambling card game that was very Mm -hmm. popular at the time. But Reuben Hold points out that Seymour was still writing pretty desperate letters to Richard's bank asking for money. So this whole gambling table thing might not have been as lucrative a venture as they'd hoped. But Everything changed in 1792, when the fall of the Bastille heralded the beginning of the French Revolution. Seymour's friend, the Duke of Orleans, was legit anti-monarchy. This guy was on the people's side, so to speak, and he rebranded himself as Philippe Egalité. But they didn't take that side switch from him. He ended up on the guillotine anyway. 
Yeah. And it's not known 100% where Seymour was during this time, but it's very probable that she was imprisoned during the Reign of Terror. As the Duke of Orleans' mistress, Grace Dalrymple Elliot, kept a journal during her imprisonment, and she wrote several times about this mysterious friend that we think was probably Seymour. Yeah, like the timelines add up yeah. and stuff like that. So yeah. they're like, she never said her name. She called her by a, a different name. Right. But they're like, I think it's probably Seymour. Also imprisoned during this time was Josephine Beauharnais, who was the future wife of Napoleon Bonaparte. Ooh. So just a real who's who in this prison. <laughs> <laughs> this prison's a who's who of ladies. Um, and again, it's not known where Seymour was exactly during this time, but she was not in England in April of 1795 when her and Richard's son Robert unexpectedly died at only 19 years old. This is so sad. Yeah. I mean, poor Seymour. She had one kid. She has not seen him since she he was five years old. Yeah. And probably not allowed to see her. Then she had a kid who died, another baby who died, two babies she had to give away. Yeah. Like, this feels tragic. Yeah. And then, of course, Richard, it's probably a big blow for him, too, because it was his only legitimate child sure. as well. Yeah. So that was, he was supposed to inherit everything, was supposed to have kids and carry on the Worsley name, the worse than Sly name. But yeah. now he's got nobody. While Seymour was locked up in Paris, Richard was still working on his reinvention. His lifelong project, I guess. <laughs> He'd gone on this extensive trip. He had picked up a lot of art and antiquities and paintings and everything. And now it was time to show the world a new and improved Sir Richard Worsley, wow. art patron. <laughs> so he wrote a book called Museum Worsley Adam. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I know, right? So pretentious. He apparently spent a lot on the binding and it looked real fancy. Oh, it bet. was like extra large. Of so you course. had to like make it a display book and not just a regular book. Anyway, mm. he really went in on it. The humble Sir Richard Worsley <laughs> exactly. presents. Wow. It was uh, a book describing his travels. It included like copper plate illustrations of all his collection, his collectibles and stuff like that. Mm. And it was not meant to be sold in bookshops. His intention was to put it directly in the hands of people he wanted to impress or get in with, like okay. academic types gotcha. and the right people. Smart. You know. And he felt so strongly about it that when he discovered that a copy he'd given to a friend as a gift was up for auction at Christie's, he bought it himself. Oh. That's how he was like, I don't want any stranger to get this. Wow. Book. Okay. Um, and it did go to a fair way to redeeming him socially a little bit. Uh, he got a diplomatic position in Venice in 1793, thanks to his extensive knowledge of Italy, who was on the brink of war with France. Mm. So England was like, we really need some some ear to the ground over there. Yeah. Seymour didn't come back to England until 1797. And she was a different woman when she returned because everything that she had lived through in France I mean, you know, obviously she gets there and it's a whole different culture. Right. But then she's going through poverty and the revolution and the baby she had to give away and the death of her son. Mm -hmm. This drained a lot of that sassy energy that she had when she left the country. She was also seriously ill with what was called an inflammation of the lungs. And the only good news about this was that it led to a reconciliation with her family. That mm, perfect nice. sister of hers, Jane, and and her mother, they, they went to see her. And Seymour wrote to Richard Stewart, quote, You will now be glad to hear that I am restored to the love and regard of all my family. They have all been to see me, and they are all goodness to me. 
Think what happiness I must feel at an event that I have so long wished for. I mean, it had been 15 years since she'd seen I them mean, after all, right? Like, right, and f- since the trial. So right. it's like, all right, it's been 15 years. You did something crazy, but uh-huh. we're friends again. Yeah. And How like, long does it take yeah. <laughs> to redeem yourself, I guess? I like that she said that, you know, I... I've, I, I've been dreaming of this reunion yeah. for so long and mm-hmm. think how good it must have felt that it went well. Yeah. Because I'm sure. sure she's imagining all possibilities. Definitely. They're going to hate me. They're going to not, they're going to tell me to fuck off. Mm-hmm. They're going to make fun of me the whole time or something yeah. or treat me inferior. And we got along great. Mm-hmm. It was so great to be with my and family. They forgave me yeah. for, for, you know, any dirt that got tossed onto them right. because of what I was doing. Right. In fact, um, Jane and the Earl even took Seymour to stay by the sea for her health. And they were so respectable, the two of them, that just being seen in public with them helped repair Seymour's reputation. Mm-hmm. Even Richard's own relatives were willing to receive Seymour. <laughs> they were like, if the Harringtons are escorting her yes. out, she must have just thrown those traces off. <laughs> exactly. And it's fine now. We're We're all thinking of... Steve Harrington. I know I was definitely. Cons. I mean, I'll never hear the word Harrington again without <laughs> thinking of. I was like the Earl of Harrington. Steve. I hope he had some good hair. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just throw out for our audience, yeah. who are probably big Steve Harrington fans out I hope there? So I just want to say that Joe Keery is one of the nicest people I've ever met. Yay! He's so great. I love he him. He actually is awesome. He wrote he wrote me a list of recommendations for restaurants while I was in L.A. Just saying. Oh. Just saying. Wow. I couldn't find a wow. single one of them, but I'm sure they were delicious. He, he's like, yeah, I'll write you a list of recommendations. <laughs> like, Tony's. <laughs> yeah, right. He just made up a bunch of like... Donut Palace. <laughs> <laughs> Joe's Cafe. Wait, that's me. Wait uh, Jake's Cafe. <laughs> oh, no. Is he an asshole? <laughs> oh, no. He was so Joe. nice. <laughs> All right. Different Harringtons. Seymour actually wrote after meeting with her family and spending time with them, quote... I really think one of the greatest blessings is being beloved by one's nearest and dearest. True. Just a nice sentiment to take after all the years of everything she'd been through. Yeah. I mean, you could see that the steadiness of the people around her Uh would be extremely valued by her. Because she does, again, she's got these guys that are kind of in and out and Richard sucked so hard. Like, who, who does she believe in? Yeah. Now, of course, Seymour is still Seymour, okay? So (laughs) she had just learned to be a little more discreet. Okay, okay. Hey, that's learning. That is learning. (laughs) That is learning. She probably didn't want to do anything to jeopardize her newfound relationship with her family. So she lived in a property that was left to her by her father, Mr. Fleming, and that had been divided into three houses. So she lived in one. Her friend, Grace Dalrymple Elliott, lived in the middle house and then the third was rented out to various fast types of people oh so maybe not the right type okay okay um and seymour actually had a fling with one of these neighbors his name is colonel george porter and he actually later married seymour's friend lady henrietta grosvenor another member of the new female coterie oh yeah 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 even though henrietta was 11 years older than george porter Mm. so get it girl (laughs) um (laughs) and then seymour had her own real love affair. Jean-Louis Hummel, a Swiss singer with a family background in trade. Now, Jean-Louis was not wealthy. 
Uh, Seymour was in her mid-40s and old enough to be his mother. But their relationship still worked. Now, maybe Jean-Louis was just like, cool, she's got money, her husband's old. If I hang out long enough, (laughs) she (laughs) might leave me some, I don't know. But apparently they got along really, really well. Meanwhile, Richard had to flee Italy when the Venetian Republic fell to Napoleon in 1797, and he came back to the Isle of Wight, where he became more and more antisocial. Can't blame him, to be honest. Accompanying him to and from Venice was his quote-unquote housekeeper, Sarah Smith. Rubenhold writes, quote, Having traveled with her lover from England to Venice and braved the perilous journey by sea and land back to the Isle of Wight, Mrs. Smith was undoubtedly a most dedicated mistress. It is hard to imagine that anything but a genuine love held the two together. Which is a nice thought for Richard to have a a true love, I guess. But I also wonder if she's of unequal social status. She might just be like, follow the money. I'll go wherever the money is. I I mean, I don't like to cast dispersions onto Mrs. Smith. (laughs) (laughs) But if Jean-Louis can be suspected of loving Seymour for her money, I think Mrs. Smith also can. I guess. I just like, yeah, good for her. Whatever. She married a a potential child murderer and a known racist and slave owner. So they can both get lost as far as I'm concerned. They could be truly in love because they were both runny shits that found each other at last. Now, when Richard did flee Venice, he'd had to pack up a separate ship with his antiquities and his art and all the paintings he'd purchased while he lived there. But unfortunately for Sir Richard... The ship that held most of it, the Robert Pattison, Bat- was Bat- the name of the ship. <laughs> Robert Pattison, no N. Batma. <laughs> Batma. Batma. <laughs> well, this ship, the Robert Pattison, was ransacked, and all the valuable stuff inside was held to ransom. And Sir Richard is like, "Oh, fine. I guess I'll take some of my money and pay off this ransom." But guess what? Much much of this collection was stolen anyway. And so his obsession with collecting only grew stronger now. Since he didn't have an heir anymore, his only chance at a legacy that wasn't about him helping another man peep on his wife (laughs) was to go down in history as an impressive arts patron. He was digging a real financial hole with all these acquisitions, though. And all these dubious art dealers, they smelled a sucker. They were like, here's a man who will do anything to increase his collection. Yeah. He don't even have to see the thing uh-huh. before he buys the thing. Uh-huh. So he bought a ton of paintings from this one guy only to have his bankers remind him that, hey, uh, you don't actually have enough money for that purchase. Uh-huh. So you're going to have to turn around and sell all those paintings at a loss. So he lost money on both ends of the transaction. Yeah. yeah. Wow. A lot of the art that he bought, he never even got to see once. Mm. It was just a, it's just flushing money down the toilet. Throwing good money after bad. When Sir Richard Worsley died of a stroke in 1805, he left his estate in so much debt and disarray that it took 20 years to work it out. Mm. But the faithful Mrs. Smith was provided for. He left her 250 pounds a year, which is... A little under 24,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. So 25 grand, which is considerably less than the 600 pound alimony yeah. that he was going to be paying out to Seymour. to Seymour. So it's not like, I mean, I guess he didn't have that kind of money anymore. I guess 250 not. pounds a year is probably the best she's going to get. Yeah, I guess so. It was nice of him to think of her, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, In yeah, yeah, will. right. 
And although he never knew it, his collection of marbles and Greek antiquities was completely overshadowed when Lord Elgin, another famous cuckold and a future subject of Ridiculous Romance, <laughs> brought his collection to London. And everyone's talking about, oh, the Lord Elgin collection. Lord Elgin's marbles. Yes. But Sir Richard's death was exactly what Seymour had spent years waiting for. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> everyone's like, oh, finally. Because now she could shake off his stupid name and get her dang-dang fortune back. For real. So less than a month after he died, Seymour, aged 47, married Jean-Louis Hummel, aged 26. Mm. By royal license, she resumed her maiden name of Fleming, so she was Lady Seymour Fleming once again. Okay. And Jean-Louis changed his name to Fleming as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess in deference to her greater wealth or something. Yeah, sure, like, sure, sure. What's Hummel mean? Nothing. Uh-huh. She got her enormous widow's jointure that we talked about in the first episode that was guaranteed uh-huh. when they got married uh-huh. and everything. So she got that money. She was able to live in comfort and stability once again after so long of the shifting sands of mm-hmm. poverty. And not long after all that happened, she got a visitor. Oh, a secret visitor. Remember when Seymour gave away that daughter to a local family in rural France? Uh-huh. Well, Charlotte was her name, and she had grown up and gotten married by this oh, time. Oh, wow. And her husband filed a claim in court saying that Charlotte was legally entitled to Sir Richard's fortune as well as Seymour's fortune because she was their child. Oh. Uh, because he was uh, unaware <laughs> of the facts of the matter. No, 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 sir. You see, the whole reason I dropped this girl off with you <laughs> Cause, uh, is because she ain't. She ain't sir got Richard's no daddy. Daughter. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we do not know who her daddy is. <laughs> okay. You can make up somebody if it makes you feel better, <laughs> but you cannot apply for his I, money in court. Her dad is Napoleon Bonaparte. There you go. <laughs> sure. But go ask him for some money, and I'm telling you, he won't give it to you. So, see, you know, this might seem like, oh, I just came into money and now people knocking on my door all of a sudden. Right, right. But after having lost so many children, Seymour was just really happy to reconnect with one. Okay. She said, great. Yay, Charlotte. I'm so happy to see you again. And she settled a thousand pounds on Charlotte and she promised to leave an additional three thousand pounds to any of their children. Oh, that's nice. So that is nice. I think that's nice. (laughs) At least you can do if you drop a baby off in a farm somewhere. Right. She's like, all right. I didn't have a fortune at the time, but now I do. And yes, I think you deserve Uh some of it. And it's nice that she got to reconnect with one of her babies. Oh, seriously. I think that was probably a very serious source of sadness for her Uh in her life. Definitely. Definitely. Now, as soon as the armistice happened in 1814, Seymour was like, I'm getting the hell out of England. Mm -hmm. I'm done with this place. I'm going back to Paris. She was among the first to relocate in 1816. She and Jean-Louis settled in Passy, and that's where she was living when she passed away in 1818 at 61 years old, just shy of her 13th anniversary. She has a tomb at Père Lachaise, which has this kind of cheeky inscription. It says, quote, Yes, thou shalt be obeyed. Who you talking to, girl? Which you isn't... didn't obey nobody. <laughs> not the quote of uh, of Lady Seymour's life, you know. Maybe she meant like you'll be saying that to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> Rubenhold writes that of all of Seymour's lovers, Jean Louis stuck beside her the longest. And maybe people think that it was just the promise of what he inherited that made him so loyal. 
And it's true that he was a very wealthy widower. He had his own land, and he was now styled Baron Fleming. Mm. Just quite a leap from his start in life as the stepson of a stocking manufacturer. I know. I think this is hard for me to grasp as an American because our whole culture is about starting from nothing and getting to the top. And it's like not a common story necessarily, but it's supposed to be achievable. Yeah. Whereas in this time and place, it was not. If you were a manufacturer, you were never going to be a lord. That is not a thing that you, you don't jump that line usually. You didn't already have it. Yeah, exactly. So it was quite, quite a, quite a leap in life, I guess, for him. Mm -hmm. But Rubenhold thinks that his respect and all of his affection for Seymour was genuine. She writes, quote, he hoped that posterity would remember them together. He may have been the only person to do so. His final request was to be buried alongside my dearly beloved first wife, Lady Seymour Fleming, a woman of whom he had never been ashamed. Well, I like that. Yeah. I like that. I'm glad yeah. Lady Seymour experienced some true love in her time. It's always nice. That to... wasn't going to result in a criminal conversation. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, uh, several of our stories that we've told that are like someone's just chaotic mm-hmm. life, ups and downs, crashes and burns, like... Just this, that, and the other. Lovers coming and going, getting right. jilted. And then they finally find someone who's just like, hey, I love you. Yeah. Let's hang out. I'll just and be it's, here. That's always nice to be like, all right, I'm glad you eventually. found somebody eventually. And for a lot of people, it's just like, I, you know, you find happiness in being like, I don't need all that. And mm-hmm. I'm happy alone or whatever. That's yeah. a, a, a story, too. But for some of these, like for Lady Seymour, I'm glad that she got Someone who really cared about her and stuck with her. Yeah, definitely. She kind of reminded me a lot of Colette. Yeah. Because Colette, of course, shitty first husband, uh, moving on to other lovers, constantly being left and, you know, nobody, you know, people just kind of being like, I'll take you up for a while, but, you know, you're not for me forever or anything. And then near the, you know, when she got older, she met Maurice. Yeah. And she had her true love for many years who stuck by her and really cared so i was like there you go go to france i guess if you need to find a lover (laughs) well it's been said go to france (laughs) so yeah that is the story of lady seymour fleming and sir richard worsley beautiful and really wild oh yeah and good old george Mm -hmm. i feel bad for george a little bit i mean it feels like he did he did love seymour Mm -hmm. and probably would have stuck around had there not been all this legal I think so. You know, stuff blocking him, basically. I mean, it it sucks that he had to leave her, but you kind of see where he didn't really have a choice. It's like, if I want any kind of life. Exactly. I I gets to go. Yeah, there's only so long I can party with the Prince of Wales before. Right. Kind of like, okay, but I also need to, like, pay for things. Right. (laughs) Get a lady to run my household and have babies and so on. Yeah. I mean, again, life life is different now. You don't need all that shit. (laughs) (laughs) So her and George could have probably lived happily ever after. Right. But not not in that time. So, yeah, he really. No. I kind of I feel bad. I think he totally would have married her if if yeah. if Richard had given her a divorce. I think they would have gotten married. Oh, my God. And probably would have very little episode to say about them. Yep. But happily ever after. That's not what happened. Richard decided to go down in history as wow. Will Perv. Well, <laughs> thanks, for the, thanks for the two-parter, Richard. Yeah, thanks, Richard. It's the <laughs> longest part you ever gave anybody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
so, so glad to share this story with you all. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, tell us what you thought of Sir Richard and, and Lady Seymour. And, yeah. You know, if you would have hung out with the new female coterie at oh, a fancy right. brothel. Definitely. Drank, got drunk on champagne in the middle of the afternoon. I would have. They're straight up having mimosa brunches <laughs> and playing and gambling. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, let us know what you think. We always love hearing from y'all. You can email us at ridicromance at gmail.com. That's right. Of course, you can find us on social media, Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Oh Great, it's Eli. I'm at Dianamite Boom. And the show is at Ridic Romance. Yes. And, you know, we know that you have so many podcast options. And That's we right. really appreciate you spending your time with us. Always, because we love doing it. Yeah. And we want to keep doing it. Yeah. So, listen to the song, tell your friends, neighbors relatives, whatever rhymes you need. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here comes the music. Thanks again, y'all. Love you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose Podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.